0: Listener-supported, WNYC Studios.
1: I'm Rebecca Ibarra, host of WNYC and NPR's Consider This. In for Tanzina Vega, this is The Takeaway. This week's conviction of former police officer Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd has reignited calls for sweeping police reform across the U.S.
2: Today, we feel a sigh of relief. Still, it cannot take away the pain. A measure of justice isn't the same as equal justice. This verdict brings us a step closer. And the fact is, we still have work to do.
1: We still must reform the system. And while many did breathe a sigh of relief, over the past week we've also been reminded of just how rampant police violence against black people is in the country. Sixteen-year-old Micaiah Bryant in Columbus, Ohio, and Andrew Brown Jr. in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, are among the black Americans most recently killed by police officers. Here's Philonis Floyd, brother of George Floyd, speaking after the guilty verdict was announced for Derek Chauvin.
0: Times, they're getting harder every day. 10 miles away from here, Mr. Wright, Dante Wright. That's right.
3: Yeah. He
0: should still be here. We have to always understand that we have to march. We will have to do this for life.
1: Many lawmakers pledged to dramatically overhaul policing at the federal level in the aftermath of Floyd's murder last May, yet close to a year later, progress has been slow. Last month, the House passed the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act in a close vote with zero support from Republicans. It heads to the Senate next, and even with Democrats in control, it's expected to be an uphill battle.
4: My conversations with the Floyd family, I spoke to them again today. I assure them we're going to continue to fight for the passage of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act so I can sign the law as quickly as possible.
1: For more on federal police reform legislation in Washington, we're joined now by Representative Barbara Lee of California's 13th District Congresswoman. Great to have you with us.
3: Nice being with you, Rebecca. Thank you very much.
1: How comprehensive is the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act?
3: Well, thank you. Uh, It's very comprehensive. And uh, let me tell you, uh, first of all, the um, verdict um, uh, with regard to Mr. Floyd, it's really cracked open the door to accountability. But uh, true justice is a world in which this never would have happened to Mr. Floyd or to countless others. And, and so the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act is a major step forward. Of course, it does not address all of the structural and systemic issues as it relates to structural racism. But I just have to tell you, I believe that if uh, the bill had been made, law had been signed into effect, we would have saved many, many lives. And um, it's, you know, a, a very sad Uh, thought and moment to think that Republicans in the House did not vote for it, not one. Mm. But I have a lot of hope because I know um, uh, Congresswoman Karen Bash, she's a good friend, uh, Senator Booker, Senator Scott, and they are working day and night trying to uh, reach some form of bipartisan uh, agreement so that this can move forward and be on the president's desk um, very soon.
1: Congresswoman, let's break down a few of the things this legislation would do. The bill would ban chokeholds and end qualified immunity, which often shields police from some lawsuits. Are, are these sweeping reforms or more incremental? Well, I
3: think uh, in many ways they are sweeping reforms. Uh, mm. But of course, again, as I said, we have a lot of work to do to address the structural and underlying issues. But when you look at the fact that the um, Uh, if a police officer hurts or kills someone, they should not have immunity from lawsuits. They currently Mm -hmm. do. That's a sweeping uh, reform. Banning the use of chokeholds. I mean, can you imagine anyone, uh, especially Republicans, um, saying we should allow chokeholds? That's (laughs) a sweeping uh, reform. When you look at uh, the fact that we're uh, asking that we not uh, allow the transfer of weapons of war to police departments, uh, that's a sweeping reform. Uh, Also, it's really important to understand, and a lot of people don't even know, that we don't have a national uh, database so that um, the public and police department can really see who... These officers are, and if, whether or not they're corrupt, dangerous, or abusive, again, that's a sweeping reform, and, and these sound like measures that should have been in place in law already, <laughs> but they're mm. not, and and so this is an important bill. It's a bill that uh, we must pass. It's a must pass bill, and so I have to just say uh, I'm very uh, cautiously optimistic that it's going to get done because we have some uh, really strategic. Uh, committed individuals who have formed the negotiation team. Right now it's informal, but I believe that these are going to become um, more formalized as the days go by.
1: You mentioned the database. That's the National Police Misconduct Registry that's being proposed. Can you tell us a little bit more about the aim of that?
3: Sure. First of all, uh, we need to be able to um, know about an officer's history of disciplinary action. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that needs to be recorded in an accessible uh, database. And that would allow, and we know that some officers move from one department to another, from one city to another to avoid accountability. And it's important to have this database to um, include the use of force and traffic stops that um, require, again, the database requires collection analysis and release of data uh, to track individuals such as this. And so that's a way to prevent uh, abusive police officers, corrupt and dangerous police officers from, uh, quite frankly, killing people, especially African-Americans.
1: Congresswoman, as you may know, many progressive activists actually oppose this bill because they say anything short of overhauling the entire system isn't enough. And and I'll use New York as an example. The NYPD banned the use of chokeholds in the 1990s, and that didn't stop an officer from killing Eric Garner with a chokehold 20 years later. So what's your response to that?
3: Well, my response to that is uh, it may not go far enough. I voted for it. I'm a progressive, and mm-hmm. uh, I understand the realities we see right now with this very uh, good bill uh that establishes the national standard, the mandates data collection, uh, reprograms existing funds uh, for community-based policing, streamlining the federal law to prosecute excessive force. We know that these are good measures and that this would begin to help address the systemic issues. I want to see uh, systemic racism, the structural racism uh, dismantled <laughs> within our criminal justice system and every other uh, you know, system in our country. Uh, And so the political realities are, we've got to get this passed. And Mm -hmm. it may not go far enough. Uh, Many agree it doesn't. But we have to start somewhere to save lives. And this will save uh, black and brown lives.
1: So people like Gina Clayton Johnson, an attorney and activist, say Black and brown folks have organized and helped elect Democrats to office in the hope that lawmakers will deliver on a commitment to race, justice and equality. So Congresswoman, when Democrats like you are up for reelection, will you be able to look voters like Clayton Johnson in the eye and say this bill is the best we could do?
3: Absolutely. And let me tell you, first, I just have to say uh, she's right. Black and brown people elected Uh, Democrats to Congress, the House and the Senate, as well as the White House. And so uh, there's accountability there that's required. And Mm -hmm. again, our young people, people who are protesting peacefully in the streets, uh, in many respects, they uh, are pushing the envelope to make sure that um, police reform becomes a reality in this country, as well as dismantling systemic racism. When you look at uh, the composition of the Senate, and again, I get very frustrated myself because Democrats have the House, the Senate, and the White House. But mm-hmm. members of the Senate, members of the House, come from different districts, and the political dynamics around this is such that we have to. And and, and again, I have to salute uh, Congresswoman Bass, Senator Booker, and Senator Scott because they're trying. They're trying very hard. But if they have, if it's this difficult to bring Republicans around, so we can get. Um, a bill, imagine what if we didn't have those individuals, especially, uh, you know, the margin in the Senate being so fragile. But we do have, um, you know, two additional senators. But it's so tight. It's so close until uh, we have to push the envelope as far as we can push it or do nothing. And I don't um, especially uh, like incremental change because enough is enough and the time is now. So at this point, with the political composition of the Senate and in the House, and it was a difficult bill to get through the House also, uh, it's either we act on something or nothing. And uh, I have to say we have to keep our movement going, though, our political movement, and hold members of Congress accountable at the ballot box. And I'm certainly willing, uh, and I come from a very enlightened and progressive district, And uh, I'm willing to stand before my constituents and say I did everything I could do to save black and brown lives from uh, police murders and police misconduct. I did everything I can do to hold police accountable and to increase transparency. You know, I did everything I could do to make sure that police officers uh, don't consider themselves above the law. I'll tell them I did everything I could do to ban the use of chokeholds. And I will hope that they would vote for me because they know I'm fighting for them and I'm going to keep fighting until uh, true justice is done. And I, uh, you you know, as much as I don't, again, as a progressive incremental change for me, and I've been in this battle all my life for justice, Mm -hmm. And I I would just say uh, I'm still standing to fight for another day. But uh, I hope and I recognize and I salute our young people, especially who really did uh, help bring us a a Democratic majority uh, by their uh, unbelievable voter registration, voter engagement and get out to vote efforts. And and that's a fact.
1: So uh, we have time for one last question here. There have been recent discussions between Democrats and Republican Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina to see if there's a compromise, if a compromise can be reached on this legislation between the two parties. Are there specific areas that you see room for compromise with the GOP on this then?
3: I would leave that up to uh, our negotiators. They know where they are in the talks. But I have to tell you, uh, this is a very um, good, moderate first step. And mm-hmm. I know that uh, whatever uh, agreements are reached, it will be that so that justice is done and so that we will begin to send a signal and set a new standard for policing and saying that Black lives do matter.
1: Congresswoman Barbara Lee represents California's 13th district. Representative Lee, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. We're joined now by a reporter who's been following all this very closely. Nicholas Wu is a congressional reporter for Politico. Nick, great to have you with us.
5: Thanks so much for having me.
1: We just heard from Representative Barbara Lee about the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act. Is there anything she said that stood out to you?
5: What really stood out to me was quite how much um, Democrats are still pushing for the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act, even though, uh, as she noted, the political reality of Congress and the 50-50 split in the Senate is going to make it really hard to get that piece of legislation through, since Mm. there are provisions in there like the end to qualified immunity that Republicans just don't really seem like they want to vote for.
1: Nick, so do we have a sense of how significant this legislation would be for addressing police violence, especially since the federal government really has very little control over state and local law enforcement.
5: Congresswoman uh, Lee had said that it might save lives, and that's certainly something that many proponents of this bill believe. But the devil really is in the details here, since a lot of the way this bill works is by basically conditioning federal funds on certain policy provisions. So kind of nudging uh, local police departments to adopt certain policies. But they would be very hard to do so, especially given that we don't have the same kind of uh, national police force in the United States that other countries have.
1: It's interesting that you say this is going to be really hard to pass. And and one of the sticking points you mentioned is qualified immunity. Can you tell us why this is such a sticking point, qualified immunity?
5: Well, for Democrats, uh, they see it as um, something that basically allows cops to act with impunity, because they think that Uh, With these sorts of legal protections in place for police that make it very hard to bring civil suits against them, uh, cops can act like they won't face any sort of repercussions for their actions. Congresswoman uh, Karen Bass basically made that point to me uh, a couple days ago. But uh, for Republicans, this is something that uh, would lead to all sorts of unnecessary lawsuits against police and would get in the way of allowing police to actually do their police work because they'd be fighting lawsuits all the time.
1: Republican Senator Tim Scott has proposed an alternative police reform proposal, which some Democrats have said it is too narrow in scope. Could there be any room for compromise there?
5: There might be. Senator Scott is talking with uh, Congresswoman Bass, who's the lead sponsor of the George Floyd bill. And, uh, you know, there aren't any formal negotiations yet, and they're still waiting uh, for any signs of Uh, movement among leadership in both the House and Senate. But at the very least, they have this line of conversation going. And if there is going to be any sort of movement, I mean, it's, it's going to be among these people who have been hashing out the details on this legislation all along.
1: Nick, some activists, including those from the Movement for Black Lives, oppose the legislation as it currently is. Where is their opposition coming from?
5: So, As uh, some people from the Movement uh, for Black Lives have put it, uh, they want a bill that would actually redirect funding from police, uh, defunding the police, so to speak. Uh, And so this is where legislation like the so-called Breathe Act, which I believe uh, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley is a sponsor, comes in, which would, in addition to some of these policy provisions, uh, would work towards uh, redistributing funds away from law enforcement. Now, Mm -hmm. this is something that Uh, Republicans very strongly oppose and faces resistance from within the Democratic Party as well, especially after many Democrats see their losses in the House last year as in part due to this whole controversy over defunding the police.
1: I want to talk about the Derek Chauvin trial for a second. Was this trial itself pretty divisive in, in Washington? What did you hear from different lawmakers about the process or the verdict?
5: A lot of lawmakers were uh, withheld a lot of comment until the verdict came down, you know, trying Hmm. not to influence the jurors. When the verdict finally did come down, you know, it was interesting. I was on, I was on the Hill that day and uh, members of the congressional black caucus had all gathered in one room outside the house floor, um, to watch the verdict read out on a single laptop screen. And then, you know, once that finally came out, you know, you, you heard like all these sighs of relief and then, um, People walked outside, you know, hand in hand, uh, to to talk about it. And uh, as, as as Congresswoman Bass had put it, I mean, this this brought her and other members back in uh, you know, almost thirty years to the Rodney King verdict, uh, which had gone a much different way. And I think for a lot of these members, they were just you know happy to see some uh, element of justice done. And you know, mm. unlike many other issues in Washington, I mean, this was something that. Very much aroused a certain degree of bipartisan consensus that you know something something had happened here. Now, you know what they do to uh, fix this longstanding issue of uh, of police misconduct is something else altogether?
1: Yeah, and if the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act isn't passed at the federal level, could we see cities and states taking up similar laws or is that happening at all already?
5: Um, you know, they certainly could. I mean, and of course, cities and states you know, will have control over their own uh, local law enforcement. And if, if they decided to uh, pass legislation along some of the lines of this, you know, that, that could be something that they do. Um, whether or not there's movement on that, again, you know, it goes back to this, uh, you know, how, how there are splits even among progressives on how exactly to reform the police. So um, you know, we'll have to wait and see there.
1: And then how important is it that Vice President Kamala Harris helped draft the bill and that it has President Biden's support?
5: It, it certainly helped give the White House's imprint on this bill. I mean, you know, Vice President Harris is, of course, uh, the very first black uh, vice president. But you know, as, as we've seen with other issues in Congress, even the support of the White House isn't always enough to shepherd legislation over the finish line.
1: Nicholas Wu is a congressional reporter for Politico. Nicholas, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you.
5: At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry.
2: But but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex of bugs.
5: <laughs> <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers.
1: And hopefully make you see the world anew.
5: Radio Lab adventures on the edge of what we think we know.
1: Wherever you get your podcasts. This week, President Joe Biden hosted a virtual summit to address climate change on a global level. Leaders from 40 different countries were in attendance, and several promised to cut down greenhouse gas emissions in the coming years, including President Biden.
4: By maintaining those investments and putting these people to work, the United States sets out on the road to cut greenhouse gases in half, in half by the end of this decade.
1: Organizing the summit is an attempt by Biden to reposition the U.S. as a world leader in the fight against climate change. Under former President Donald Trump, much of that work was halted after his administration chose to withdraw the U.S. from the Paris Climate Agreement. Back in March, Biden also announced the creation of an Environmental Justice Advisory Council as part of one of his executive orders to address climate change. With us to help break this all down is Dr. Mustafa Santiago Ali, former Senior Advisor for Environmental Justice and Community Revitalization at the EPA. Dr. Ali, great to have you with us.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
1: And we're also joined by Maria Lopez-Núñez with the Ironbound Community Corporation. She's also a member of the White House's Environmental Justice Advisory Council. Maria, great to have you here.
2: Thank you for having us.
1: Mustafa, you quit the EPA just months into the Trump administration. Uh, What has been going through your mind with the Climate Change Summit this week?
4: Well, you know, it is an amazing set of opportunities if it's done right and the accountability is built in and that we center frontline communities and, and our most vulnerable countries across the planet, because our people are the ones that get hit first and worst. But seeing some of these commitments is a move in the right direction. We would like to see an even stronger set of numbers to make sure that many of the impacts that are happening inside of Black and Brown and Indigenous communities are lessened and then hopefully eliminated one day. So it's a step in the right direction. And we are optimistic uh, that folks will continue to strengthen the various commitments that they've made.
1: Maria, you're a member of the White House Environmental Justice Council. What exactly is the council working
2: on? We're working on, you know, the initiative called Justice 40. And Justice 40 is supposed to be a 40 percent carve out of the investments. We're talking about the climate related investments, making sure that they go to frontline communities. And I hope that everyone understands that 40 should be considered the floor, not the ceiling. You know, it's the starting point. Um, um, to guarantee that investments are directed to those who have been most directly impacted.
1: So then, Mustafa, back to you, what are your thoughts on the Biden administration's actions on climate change to date, specifically when it comes to environmental justice?
5: Well,
4: you know, it's great to have an administration that actually centers both science, climate and environmental justice. So I think that many of us who have been doing this work for a long time are are pleased that that's happening. And and we want to make sure that folks also understand that you can't win on climate change if you don't win on environmental justice. You know, Maria just shared, you know, about the 40 percent That's a step in the right direction. But we got to make sure that those are real because it's labeled as benefits. And what our community needs is dollars also. So we want to make sure that folks are actually receiving the benefits and and the dollars that are necessary for them to continue to frame out the direction that they want to go in. Also seeing that he has begun to place inside of some of the federal agencies folks who have either come from sets of environmental justice work or competencies in that space is also a step in the right direction. But that needs to continue to grow because there are over 17 federal agencies and departments that have a distinct responsibility for it environmental justice. And of course, under the Biden administration, he has said that it is an all-of-government approach. So that means that each one of those agencies and departments should be laser-focused on the dynamics that are going on inside of our community and those dynamics, those impacts that are happening in black and brown and indigenous communities and Asian and Pacific Islander and sometimes lower wealth white communities that are actually making our lives shorter and making us sick are also the drivers in warming up our oceans and our planet. I'm pleased that they're moving in the right direction. But we know that if we don't stay continually holding people accountable, then sometimes folks will slip.
1: Mustafa, I want to talk about bit about this week's climate summit. Did any specific announcements from the Biden administration stand out to you?
4: Well, I think they were all significant because we got a chance to see uh, where uh, some of the 40 uh, members from 40 different countries actually sat in relationship to their commitments. So, you know, many of us um, had hoped that at least 50 percent number would come out from the Biden administration or from the United States. And it's 50 to 52 percent. Uh, some would like to see that number higher because we understand, you know, the, the climate crisis that we find. I was pleased to a degree uh, to hear that Japan, um, you know, was giving somewhat successful and significant numbers. And what I mean by that is that You know, anybody below 50 percent is falling short. So Japan came in at about 46 percent by 2030. So for the listeners, what that means is, you know, they are going to make sure that they're cutting emissions by that number and then being net zero by 2050, which is sort of the baseline um, for folks uh, now across the planet. Uh, Canada, Canada fell a little bit short, to be quite honest with you, even though um, some would say, you know, of course, the United States and China are the two major Contributors. Uh, everybody is contributing uh, to some degree to what's going on, or at least the the major countries, if you want to label them that way. So Canada came in somewhere uh, between forty to forty five percent by twenty thirty.
2: Hmm. Uh,
4: China China was a little interesting, and, and I'll just close out with China. You know, mm-hmm. China said that their peak emissions uh, before twenty thirty uh, will be carb. Um, you know, that they'll do some work in that space. Didn't give a hard number but um, said that they would be carbon neutral by 2060, which is outside of that uh, norm number of 2050 right now.
1: Mm. Maria, I want to go back to what you said before, which is the Biden administration has pledged that 40% of the benefits of all of its climate policies uh, will be directed towards disadvantaged communities. Can you break that down for us? Because what exactly do we mean by benefits? And then how does this, what does this mean on a practical level?
2: Yeah. And I mean, and, you know, like um, Mustafa was saying, we need 40 percent of investments, not just benefits, because benefits could be anything. It could be the bike lane. It could be, you know, if there's a park that gets planted over there, maybe has an effect on our communities. Mm. So right now, you know, um, the council is working on uh, the definition of for the forty percent of what is the benefit, but I think we need to go still much, many, many more steps further, right? Because I think right now at the summit, the United States is talking to other governments, and the United States government really should be talking to environmental justice communities and centering this conversation about what we're going to do about climate change with our own people. You know, we can't just have state to state relationships. We need to reconnect and re rebuild the relationship that's been broken between the federal government and the communities who are directly impacted.
1: And Maria, how much can the White House actually do on environmental justice without legislative action?
2: I mean, there's always plenty we could do. For instance, I'm I'm not too happy about the net zero. I would like to see us talk about direct emissions, cutting emissions at source, you know, because right now our communities are being assaulted by carbon sequestration plans, techno fixes, geoengineering. There are things that we need at the community level. Um, And I think that we could start the conversation because that would force legislative action. You know, if there was a big take the show on the road, talk to all the different communities across the country, environmental justice community, indigenous um, communities then I think that that would go really far in building the political will to get something done. And of course, things can be done by executive action, right? We need executive orders right now. Um, Trump wasn't shy to use them, and I would love to see more um, forcefulness on behalf of justice for our communities.
1: Mustafa, what were some of the biggest bureaucratic holdups that you witnessed inside of the EPA on environmental justice?
4: Well, you know, if we're going to have an honest conversation, something I always call real talk, You know, you've got got biases, discrimination, and systemic racism that has been built into our policies um, for decades that make it more difficult for communities of color to actually get justice. So the unpacking uh, and dismantling of that is critically important. And then even if you saw, um, you know, strong work being done or attempted on the federal level, we still have to realize that those dollars and those actions leave the feds and go down to the states and the counties and local governments. So as it's making that journey, you have the assumption that folks are going to do the right things on those levels. And then sometimes Mm -hmm. yes and sometimes no. So you have to make sure that one, you're building stronger accountability into the process. And two, uh, that those folks have the resources and tools that they need. And then the other part, which was outside of the government, but is definitely connected to the government, is making sure that frontline organizations have the resources that they need um, to build the capacity to be able to navigate all the challenges that exist when in dealing with bureaucracies and, and trying to make real change happen. So this administration has the exact same set of challenges and then also the overlay of the climate crises that we're fighting. So um, we've got a lot of work to do to make sure that folks have those competencies, that there's accountability. Um, And that both folks on the local level in government and in frontline organizations have the resources they need to be able to make uh, change happen.
1: Maria, your organization is based in Newark, New Jersey. What impact does environmental racism have on residents of Newark specifically?
2: (laughs) I mean, when we look at the skyline. We see the state's largest garbage incinerator, right? Which fifty percent of the trash is not even it's coming from New York City. You know, it's not trash that's being generated even within our own state. Then we have two power plants in our neighborhood. We're right next to the port of Newark and Elizabeth. You know, we have fat rendering plants, plastic plants. We're also bordered by the longest superfund site in the country. That's the Passaic River, where we made Agent Orange during the Vietnam War. And the mm. poison that was left behind of that, it's all low round neighborhood. And so much of it has never been cleaned up you know we have over 100 brownfield sites and what i want folks to understand is when i'm talking about my neighborhood i'm talking about four square miles you know so i'm Mm -hmm. talking about a concentration of pollution legacy pollution that has not been cleaned up for many administrations you know so i'm thankful for the movement that's been holding our federal government steadily accountable and for us to be at this moment but i want to see real change not just words. you know i want us to slingshot (laughs) um the just transition and make sure that we don't leave behind communities like ours.
1: Mustafa, how does what Maria is describing in Newark compare to the effects of environmental racism on communities of color nationwide?
4: Let me just call out that Maria and, and the folks at Ironbound have been doing amazing work for decades and, and often with, the, with not having the right amount of resources that they needed. You know, the dynamics that we have going on across our country that ground truth and anchor us to why this work, both on the environmental justice side and the climate side is so important. We have 100,000 people who die prematurely from air pollution every year in our country. Mm -hmm. That's more folks that are dying from air pollution than are dying from gun violence. More people are dying from air pollution than are dying from car crashes. And all those things are important um, and we have to give our attention to it to make change happen in that space. In our country, we got over 60 million people who have dealt with unsafe drinking water over the last decade. And we know in both those situations that I mentioned, it is primarily black and brown and indigenous communities that are dealing with it. No community should have to deal with that. Or in Port Arthur, Texas, where Hilton Kelly is a Goldman Prize winner. You know, a once thriving African-American community, they're surrounded by petrochemical facilities um, and they have high rates of cancer and liver and kidney disease and a number of other things. So when our communities are impacted, Our health is impacted and then our wealth is impacted because our homes lose value when we're next to these types of things. And historically, we have placed our housing in floodplains and next to toxic facilities. And you see it across our country, whether we're talking about on reservations or if we're talking about in Appalachia with lower wealth, white communities, or of course, black and brown communities all across our country. When you look at what's going on in Alaska, where brothers and sisters are literally their homes are sliding into the ocean uh, because of the changes that are happening from climate change and from the exposures that they've had to deal with from toxic pollution. Or we've seen what happened with brothers and sisters, and my family is from Puerto Rico, you know, the impacts that happened from Hurricane Maria. But it was happening even before Hurricane Maria got there that folks were dealing with Superfund sites and brownfield sites and, uh, and the military, um, you know, doing testing and leaving it behind in places like Vieques and others. So we have a lot of work to do as we're having this conversation about climate. Um, you know, we've gotta be very aware that we have to rebuild the infrastructure inside of our communities if we're gonna be able to fully uh, be able to participate in this new clean economy that the president and others talk about and and as needed. Um, but we've gotta make sure that we're not placing veneers over the challenges that still exist inside of our communities.
1: Maria, do you have any advice for local organizers trying to push back against environmental racism and organize? (laughs)
2: <laughs> i mean it's a it's a yeah right i laugh just because the the challenge is so hard because and for organizers on the ground they're not just dealing with climate change you know they're dealing with racism with police brutality with immigration raids gentrification you know like it it is a hard time to be an organizer in community um mm. and one thing that nancy zach who's been at working with us for 47 years, you know, she always says, we can't give up at the same time. You know, So make sure that mm-hmm. you have a strong team with you and that you take turns. Um, because this work does wear us down, but we have to keep going because of decades of organizing. We've reached the moment we're at today um, with environmental justice finally being centered. And I'm hopeful that if we keep pushing, we're, we're actually going to get somewhere this time.
1: Maria López-Núñez works with the Ironbound Community Corporation and is a member of the White House's Environmental Justice Advisory Council. And Dr. Mustafa Santiago Ali is a former senior advisor for environmental justice and community revitalization at the EPA. Thank you both for joining us.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
1: This week, the House voted along party lines to pass legislation that would make the District of Columbia a state. This is the second time the House has voted to grant statehood to D.C. The legislation, also known as H.R. 51, now heads to the Senate. If passed by the Senate and signed into law, the legislation would establish Washington Douglas Commonwealth as the 51st state. Yes, the state would be renamed for abolitionist and civil rights leader Frederick Douglass. D.C. residents would gain two senators and a voting Congress person. Advocates for statehood have tied the battle for D.C. statehood to the fight for equal voting rights and racial equality, as black residents represent the largest racial demographic group of the district's more than 700,000 citizens. The nationwide reckoning over systemic racism and the groundswell of support for voting rights has elevated the fight for statehood. Now, as the D.C. statehood bill heads the Senate, it faces a number of hurdles, including the filibuster. Joining us now to discuss what statehood would mean for her constituents is Representative Eleanor Holmes Norton of Washington, D.C. Welcome to The Takeaway, Representative Norton.
0: Glad to be with you.
1: Representative, you've represented Washington, D.C. in Congress for about 30 years and have spent much of that time championing statehood for D.C. How does it feel to have legislation for statehood pass the House for the second time?
0: Well, the reason I haven't been able to get statehood before now is because I've been in the minority Mm. for most of my time in the Congress. So the moment I got in the majority, I pressed hard for statehood. And now it feels that we are well on our way because more than 54 percent of the American people, according to a very detailed poll, support statehood. And that's the effect of the hearings of telling Americans, what they did not know. Many Americans uh, were confused. They thought we had the same rights that they had. Uh, they some were were believed we shouldn't. <laughs> some mm. some just didn't know. The effect of the hearings uh, ha- has been to essentially educate the public. For example, they didn't know that the residents of their nation's capital pay the highest federal taxes per capita, highest in the United States, and yet don't have the same rights as other Americans.
1: How did statehood for D.C. become a tenant of the Democratic Party platform?
0: Well, the it would be in the Democratic Party platform because Uh, statehood issues have always been (laughs) divided. Hmm. Republicans have tended to support statehood when the uh, people involved were were Republicans or from Republican states and vice versa.
1: Representative Norton, you were active in the civil rights movement and helped organize the 1963 March on Washington. Today, 46% of D.C.'s more than 700,000 residents are black. So, does this fight for statehood feel like a civil rights battle to you at all?
0: Well, it does feel like a continuation of, of the battles I fought as a very, uh, actually as a student, student mm. for equality for African Americans. Now, for most of its time, as as a jurisdiction, <laughs> the, the 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 district has been majority white. Yet had, was not treated equally. <laughs> so, while my experience in the civil rights movement and my own lineage, as a third-generation Washingtonian, have all helped to 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 shape my enthusiasm for statehood, <laughs> uh, it comes from very different points on the spectrum.
1: Even though this legislation will now advance to the Senate, it faces an uphill battle without Republican support. But there's also concern about the legislation lacking full support from Senate Democrats. Is that right?
0: We do have a few Democrats still to get from more conservative Democratic states. uh, But we have more than 90 percent of the Democrats as co-sponsors for the bill. Uh, yesterday, we passed this bill in the House of Representatives, giving it a big push in the Senate. We believe that the filibuster is on its last legs. Remember, the Senate has gotten rid of the filibuster for nominations. In fact, they gotten rid of the filibuster for everything uh, except legislation. The Senate held up organizing this year, this session, because of the filibuster. So the Senate is determined to get rid of the filibuster because this majority Democratic Senate knows that the reason it got the majority is because the Republicans who had had control of the Senate had passed nothing. Legislation from the House went to the Senate to die and the people gave the Senate to the Democrats. The filibuster goes for everything else, it's going to go for DC statehood. So I'm optimistic Hmm. about this bill in the Senate as well.
1: Representative, how have Republicans you've been talking to in Congress responded to the argument that not allowing DC to become a state effectively disenfranchises its more than 700,000 residents?
0: The arguments have been uh, essentially partisan, some have been absurd. (laughs) <laughs> that we don't have the, the kinds of stores uh, or industry as states have. But basically, um, statehood, and that is not only for the District of Columbia, but for every state, has simply been a partisan matter.
1: And how significant is having support from the White House? in the fight for D.C. statehood for you? Because this week, President Biden issued a policy statement in which he expressed his support for H.R. 51 and statehood for D.C.
0: Now, White House support has been truly important. Mm. The president's strong statement of support uh, means that we have a kind of pull uh, to get this done, not just a push uh, from, from the Congress, so, it really means a great deal to the progress we're making on statehood that Democrats control the House, the Senate, and now the presidency as well. That's why we're making such a big push this session of Congress.
1: Representative Eleanor Holmes Norton is Washington, D.C.'s delegate in the House of Representatives. Representative Norton, thank you so much. My pleasure. That's all we have for you today. It's always wonderful being here with you folks. If you missed anything or want to listen back, check out our podcast. You can find it wherever you get your pods or head to the takeaway.org. Also, before we go, I want to say a special thank you to the team who works so hard to get this show together day in and day out. Jackie Martin is our line producer. Our producers are Jose Olivares, Ethan Oberman, Meg Dalton, Patricia Jacob, Lydia McMullen-Laird, and our senior producer is Amber Hall. Polly Irungu is our digital editor, Vince Fairchild is our broadcast engineer, Jake Cowett is our director and editor, David Gable is our executive assistant and Lee Hill is our EP. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Rebecca Ibarra in for Tanzina Vega, and this is The Takeaway.